Great that you're here with us on the Clark Howard Show, where it's all about you and your wallet. I want you to learn ideas from me so you can keep more of what you make. Coming up in a few minutes in today's Clark Rageous Moment, there's an idea from Canada that's being borrowed for marketing in the United States. It is a lousy idea. I'm going to tell you about it and what to avoid. And coming up later, I have great news, believe it or not, on the college front. College tuitions declining in the United States. First time I ever remember that happening. And I'll tell you why and how you take advantage of that if you have high schoolers that are intending to go off to college. There's a massive fight going on in the United States right now in city after city, state after state, about Airbnb. Airbnb has been an enormous financial boost to so many of our fellow Americans who, when somebody travels, instead of paying for a hotel room, you rent an Airbnb property and you have maybe space to spread out or you're renting a room in somebody's home or over their garage or whatever and it supplements their income and gives you either more space or a lower price or a more authentic experience where you're visiting by being able to stay in somebody's private home instead of in a hotel. Well, the hotel industry is steaming mad, and they're engaged very heavily in what are known as AstroTurf campaigns, if you're familiar with that expression. That's where they create fake groups out there that barrage politicians and say, Whoa, woe is me, woe is me. I hate these temporary rentals in my neighborhood. Get rid of them, get rid of them. And then the hotel chains give money to politicians to try to pass bans or heavy restrictions. And so these restrictions have been going in around the country. And now, in several places around the U.S., there are going to be ballot initiatives in just a few weeks, where citizens will be able to overrule, potentially, the government in an area that has said no to Airbnb. And this is something that I really support the citizen initiative process because there are issues on both sides of this equation and there are disruptions caused by Airbnb rentals. No doubt. And their smaller competitors, VRBO and Home Away. But it is really rotten, terrible for governments to try to put in restrictions to ban rentals simply to protect special interests, the hotels. You know, this market exists because it's meeting a need in the marketplace. And government prohibition of competition that big, deep-pocketed, big hotel operators don't like is ridiculous. So I saw some stats in the Washington Post piece that the number of room nights being rented around the world is now approaching $100 billion, moving steadily closer to $100 billion room nights. Hotel room nights 
512 billion. So you're talking about five to one ratio, but hotels look at that and they're like, every one of those is something we could take. Can you even believe there's that many room nights? So many people traveling all around the world. But but the thing is, if I live in a condo, and this has been an issue in Hawaii as an example, I live in a condo complex, I don't like potentially having all those transients coming through and filling up the pool and all that when before Airbnb, it was really quiet at the pool. I get that. And that's why a lot of places have done so. Uh, condo developments in urban areas where the, where the board or the association has banned short-term rentals. That's fine. That's their decision for their property. But government effectively prohibiting, that is wrong, 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 and the free market should rule. Joey joins us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Joey. Hi, Clark. How are you doing? Great. Thank you, Joey. You are achieving a great milestone. Tell me what that is. I'm making my last payment on my student loans. That has got to feel great. It does. How many years have you been burdened by student loan debt? Nine years. Wow. It's going to feel great to be done. And there are a lot of people green with envy that you turned your student loan to zero in less than a decade because some people are facing 30 years with student loan debt. But that's great that that you are done. Did you pay off on a more aggressive schedule or just work out that you were able to pay it off in nine? More aggressive schedule. I, I kind of made a plan uh, of getting it paid off in less than 10 years because I didn't want this, you know, over my head. Like you just said over 30 years, that's just too much. Um, really, uh, stuck with it, uh, made more, way more than the minimum payments and, uh, got it paid off in nine years. And I don't know if you've heard me say to others in the past who successfully paid off student loans, you need to keep your proof that you have successfully paid off your student loans for the rest of your life. Right, and I need to contact Navient about that uh, before sending in that last payment, correct? Exactly, and Navient, you know, has had a lot of spotlight on them for abuses in the student lending industry, and so they especially are one that you want to be 100% certain. You have uh, proof that you have successfully paid off your student loans problem in this area is that student loan lenders were granted extraordinary power by Congress, I think in 2005, where they don't even have to prove that you owe a debt. They're able to uh, seize your bank accounts. They're able to seize your paychecks. It's unbelievably abusive what student loan lenders are allowed to do. And that's why you've got to make sure you have every bit of documentation you can to fight back if 5, 10, 20 years from now they come back and say, oh, no, you owe money. You need those documents to prove. And I would keep a copy uh, digitally and the paper copy as well because paper can disappear at some point over your lifetime. Uh, Now, a question for you. Should I make that last payment via money order, personal check, or just continue electronically like I've been doing? Electronically is fine. 
and you should have an electronic record from them showing your balance, and that last payment would show that you've taken it to zero. Correct, and then the bank would also show the canceled check um, and the final payment. And so everything you have that proves that you that, that you did all that is what you want to be about. So what's your next chapter in your life now that you have stayed to this, you've gotten these student loans wiped out, what are you going to do next? Oh, I got to say, it's a, it's a good feeling, but then it's like on to the next challenge. Uh, and the next one is going to be a HELOC, which I took out foolishly uh, for yeah foolish reasons. But I'm going to do like I did with the student loans and get this thing paid off. Um, but my question was, uh, when I wrote in, um, I'm getting ready to take a uh, vacation to Colorado to visit uh, family, my grandson that's also over there. And uh, just um, wanted to know, would it be okay to maybe splurge a little bit, maybe three months worth of those uh, $500 monthly student loan payments? And, do it. Uh, do it. <laughs> Reward yourself. I mean, you have you have worked this thing so hard for so long. If you want to just... Uh, have some fun it's like what i always say if somebody comes into unexpected money that you don't be practical with all of it you do something with it just for fun whatever it is and in this case it's like your graduation gift from student loans there you go and one thing real quick clark for all the listeners out there um, and I don't know if I can mention the names or whatever, but there are certain programs that are out there like surveys. And there's another one that, you know, if you make a promise, uh, if I can say the name, um, that they will actually contribute to your uh, student loan payments. And that's one of the things that helped me out. You know, it, I, I was on it doing the two uh, programs and it shaved off uh, probably about a year's worth of payment, maybe a little bit less. Um, but it helps out. It's less money coming out of your pocket. So, you know, if uh, people go out and research it, you know, that's, there's potential for free money out there to help pay down your student loans. Well, I'm going to uh, step out there for a second and take a risk, and you go ahead and name who it was you wanted to name just then. Uh, it was You Promise. Oh, You Promise. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, You Promise is a very interesting program. And you promise actually helped you defray some of your costs. Uh, exactly. For, yeah, and so you promise has any of a number of features that help you save money for school, use money for different purposes, specifically designed around education. And so it's the letter U promise.com. And you go have fun in Colorado and don't feel guilty about blowing some of that money. Thomas is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Thomas. Hi, Clark. How are you? Great. Thank you, Thomas. You have a very enterprising young son, I gather. Yeah, he got an opportunity. uh, Got a little side job feeding calves on a dairy farm. And uh, I'm excited for him to, for what he's going to learn there. But also he's making a nice wage for an 11-year-old. And I was just wondering if using a Roth IRA would be as a savings account for him would be a doable strategy yeah so doing the roth for an 11 year old is beyond fantastic because you have to it has to be a custodial roth 
right. uh, all three of my kids had Ross from the second they started working. And so it allowed them as teenagers to start building up money for the long term. And so you can open a Roth with any of my low-cost companies I've got and fund it uh, only up to the amount your 11-year-old earns in a year. Okay. And then that money can either grow tax-free for the next 50 years and will grow into an amazingly large amount of money over 50 years. Or your son, when he reaches adulthood, can pull out contributions that have gone in as he's a young child through the and then through the teenage years, he can pull contributions out tax and penalty free. Any earnings okay. would need to stay in there till he is, in fact, at retirement age, 50 years away. Okay. That was kind of my understanding is that maybe we need to, if we do this, we need to track his contributions. Yeah. And I'm actually, the fund, companies, the, the fund companies will do that for you now. Okay. So that shouldn't be hard. And how much money is your 11-year-old going to be earning that would be available to go into a Roth? Well, he's pulling down about $8 an hour, three days a week for about three hours a day. Um, so it's a decent little side piece. Um, 70 bucks a week working yeah. at 11 years of age. Yeah. And, so, and anybody I know who ever worked on a farm as a kid has the greatest uh-huh. work ethic ever. Well, I was blessed to grow up on a farm, and life kind of took me away from that, so I was pretty excited when he got the opportunity. Um, and I don't know if yeah. you know this. I'm going to undermine so much credibility, but I was such a city boy that I didn't know <laughs> till I was about six that food didn't come from a factory. Yeah, I, I'm just really excited for him to get to be around the animals and um, learn all that goes with that. I mean, it's more exciting to me than the money he earns, but we need to make a plan and teach him how to save and well, the most effective way to do that. So. I don't know if you have a uh, Charles Schwab or Fidelity Investments office near you. If you look that okay. up, they would mm-hmm. both be great places for you to go with him to open a Roth because I want him to experience it and be part of it okay. from the beginning. Yeah, and, you I, know, I, have a, I have a Fidelity account myself, and my wife deals with Vanguard. I don't know. So Vanguard, um, you need 1,000 minimum, okay. which you don't have to have with the other two. And, but then also, I think the high touch of you taking him to your Fidelity office that you do business with, and he's part of the experience of opening an account and seeing the fruits of his labor, I think that's really worthwhile. There's an idea that is being imported from Canada that just needs to go back across the border. In Canada, it's common that people sign multi-year obligations to cell phone carriers, and T-Mobile, the very people who did away with contracts, now are experimenting with three-year payment plans for cell phones. It's come to that because with people getting excited about the new iPhones and the new Samsungs that all price out around $1,000 or so, the cost of people buying that, a lot of people who are excited about the iPhones or Samsungs, they can't lay out 1000 bucks. 
and they can't even handle two years of payments on a payment plan interest-free, which is still 40 something dollars a month. So now, here's this experiment offering three-year payment plans. Okay, this is a rotten, terrible idea. You end up paying more for the phone each month, likely, than for your service each month. And so it means to step back and look at, in spite of all the hype and all the ads and all that, look at a more affordable phone. Look at a used phone. Look at one of the mid-price phones or lower-price phones that you can afford to buy instead of having to finance a phone for three years That's like an albatross around your wallet. Glad you're with us here on the Clark Howard Show where you're empowered with knowledge so you can keep more of what you make. And just tuning in earlier, we heard from a gentleman who had finished paying off his student loans, getting ready to make his last payment. And student loans have been an enormous burden in this country. Total across the economy, $1.5 trillion to give you perspective that's 50 percent higher than the entire outstanding credit card debt in the country for student loans the good news is that people entering college now are much more wary about taking on student loans they're playing harder to get colleges are having a tougher time getting people to say yes and the result is that tuition costs after going up year after year at roughly three times the rate of inflation now aren't going up generally at all. The list price may be going up, but in order to lure students into their classrooms, colleges are having to offer deals. Private colleges have become really aggressive at offering deals. And the actual cost of four-year degrees is not going anywhere because the increases we've had over recent years have all been because the ease of borrowing money and people unfortunately not realizing what can be lifelong implications and burdens from taking on those student loans. So the marketplace is now working, and it's working because people are making better decisions. And a lot of private colleges, if you're going private instead of a a government college, a state college, a lot of private colleges now are short of students. Some of that's just demographics playing into the equation, but they're struggling to fill their enrollments. And that means that you don't have to be the number one student in your high school class or number five student in your high school class. You may still be able to set off a competitive battle, a bidding war, if you will, among schools that would like to have you as a student. Remember my rule, though, you're never going to protect your wallet if you only negotiate a first-year deal, you need to negotiate a four-year deal about what that school is going to offer you versus another school versus another school. You may have heard me tell the story that my daughter uh, 
after she made her decision where she wanted to go to school and rejected places, one of the schools she rejected came back and offered her a monster scholarship if she changed her mind and go to that place instead of the other one where she's actually attending. And I was kind of hoping she'd say, monster scholarship, I'm going to take it. But she didn't, but it was out there. And that's the thing is to use the marketplace to your advantage. And with state school systems, this varies somewhat state to state, but more and more states are now going to three-tier or four-tier state-supported school systems where they will have what is, for lack of a better term, maybe sometimes used in a state. The flagship state universities charge the highest tuition. Then there will be second-tier, third-tier, fourth-tier is uh, community colleges, many of which now offer four-year degrees. Each tier has a different tuition level. The greatest irony of it, though, of the whole system is that people who go to a first-tier state school, your freshman and sophomore year will be in far larger classes than someone who goes to a fourth-tier community college in a state. So you might be in a classroom that has 1,400 students or 800 students or something like that at a tier one, the, the flagship university in a state, instead going to a community college to deal with your prereqs as a freshman or sophomore, you might be in a class with 26 people or 44 people, not hundreds or thousands. So you get a better deal and you get more attention from the instructor. Chuck is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Chuck. Hi there, Clark. How's it going? Not bad. Not bad at all. How can I be of service to you? Well, over this uh, last six months, maybe, or a little bit longer, I've been getting offers from companies that are interested in buying my house. And, um, you know, they're pretty persistent. And so I just said, let me look them up and see what they're all about. But uh, I haven't really been able to find out much about them. So I guess my thought is... um, are they number one legit? Number two, um, if they are legit, do they you know do a, a lowball offer on your property? And what are the dangers or the risk in in going forward with one of these folks if you have to? And um, I'm just doing it primarily right now for education to learn what they're about, what their I guess business model is like, so that I can make an informed decision. Right, so uh, the the people who are approaching you, is your house a uh, house in good condition in an uh, established neighborhood? Yes, it is. So go ahead and name who it is who is on your radar. Is there any particular company that you're curious about? Um, one of them calls, uh, I think goes by the name Open Door. Ah, I've addressed Open Door on the air let me explain to you what this is about. There are a number of companies that are establishing and they're racing to establish in city after city in the country where for, um, I guess you could refer to it as mid-price homes in a market, there's enough inventory where they feel like they can figure out 
what is a fair value for your home. And okay. so what these people do is they guarantee, like in the case of Open Door and its competitors, they guarantee you that they'll they'll evaluate your home. They may come in, they'll do that online, they may come in and do an inspection, and then they will make a firm offer to you to buy your home, and then with the idea being that you vacate really quickly, typically within a month. Can be quicker, but they just buy it, and they charge you roughly the equivalent of a real estate commission to do it. They charge you about 6%. Of, so let's say, just for argument's sake, they said the house was worth two hundred thousand. They would pay you like one eighty-eight somewhere in there, and you're out, and you're just gone. So the okay. question with any of them, oh, and the reason they do that is they believe that they've developed systems. Open Door and its competitors believe they've developed systems where they can properly price a house get it um, dressed up however they need to in the landscaping or inside, and get it sold quicker than you can with you going to a traditional real estate agent and having them market the traditional way. Whether or not these things are going to stand the test of time, the market will decide. But what you get out of it is you're just done. If you like the price they offer you, bam, you're out. No questions, no ifs. You know you're done. You don't have to worry about showing the house or anything like that. I see. Okay. And you also have to decide the price that you're offered. Do you think they're lowballing you, or do you feel like it's really a decent offer they're making for your house? Okay. All right. Does that make sense? Yes, yes, it does. Yes, I, I just, um, you know, wanted to have an idea what they were about, whether or not, the, you know, they were totally really legit. Yet. Totally yeah. legit. No doubt that this is a uh, a real thing, and the companies doing this. I think another one is OfferPad. I think is another one, and there's another one called Knock. And so with these companies. They're learning how to price, they're learning how to market, they're learning how to sell, and then they add cities around the country, very heavy emphasis on the south, southwest, and west. And the reason those areas, because those are areas of the country that developed along the automobile, have a lot of suburban housing, a lot of uh, subdivisions and developments built with very similar housing plans and looks so they can more accurately price a house. They're not interested in really high-end houses because they don't know exactly how to price them and how easily they'll sell, and they're not interested in houses that tend to be in neighborhoods, let's say, that are in transition, that maybe have been rough neighborhoods trying to get better or something like that. But it is the real deal. And Tom is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Tom. Hi, Clark. How are you doing this afternoon? Great. Thank you, Tom. How can I be of service? Well, about a year and a half ago, I got a, a solicitation in the mail for a credit card for my small business, and I thought, well, let me go ahead and sign up for this because it never hurts to have a backup card in case you need it. So I, I, when I got the card, I started using it because it actually had a better cash back reward than the one I was using previously. So everything was going along fine. 
one afternoon I got a, an email from the credit card company saying, well, we got your address changed, which obviously wasn't mine. So I called them, stopped the, stopped the card, you know, sent me a new one, the whole schmear. At that point, I threw the card into the, to my file and started using my original card again. And last September, this last September, I got the same message from the credit card company. So I called them. We went to the whole dance, and they sent me a new card. And then it happened again in October. And all, all three times it's happened, there's been a different address that we're mailing the new card to. So when I talked to the company, and they sent me on to their fraud department, that whole thing, I did ask them. I said, no, the other cards I have offer a second level of security where they would ask you a question like, you know, who's your favorite rock group or where was your, your elementary school? And who is your favorite lie. rock group? Oh, Deep Purple. Okay. Now I know the code to get any of your credit cards. <laughs> I'm not using that one. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but they said they don't offer. They said, you know, they, they, they gave me some lame excuse to say, well, people can guess that. Well, maybe, maybe not, but it still should be a level of security they should offer. Well, well, there's a second issue, though, that I need to point out to you. The reason the card issuer may not care as much with a business credit card is business credit cards don't enjoy the consumer protections that a consumer card does under pre-existing law and the Card Act that was passed after the banking scandals. So the Congress carved out um, exception to consumer protections for business cards. So as an example, let's say a criminal did run up a lot of charges on your card. If they were successfully able to take it over and run up charges, the credit card company with a business card can say, oh, well, we don't think that you, Tom, took good precautions, and so we're going to hold you liable for the charges or whatever, Mm -hmm. which they cannot do on a consumer card. So I don't okay. like, even if you're using a card for business purposes, I like for you to get a consumer card and just use it in your business and pay for it from your business. Okay. So the best course of action then is to have this account closed, do you think? If you've been hit three times by people attempting to take over the account and divert the bills so that you don't know that false charges are being made... I would say three strikes and they're out okay. because somebody has somehow figured out how to crack in on your particular card and who knows how many others. And I don't want you vulnerable since you don't have the normal slate of consumer protections. Right. So you okay. can get any consumer card and just as a practical matter, pay for it from your business. Oh, so the card doesn't need to be in the business name though? No. Oh, you're liable okay. anyway. You know, when you get a business card, you know that that one of the things you signed is that you're personally liable, regardless. Mm-hmm. So they always pierce the corporate veil. So you, the company's responsible, and you're responsible. So it's actually oh. inferior to a consumer card in virtually every aspect. Well, that's good to know. I did not know that. So I would I would get the new card you're going to use instead for business first. And then close this one. Okay, great. Thank you, sir. All right, best to you. It's time for Ask Clark. That's where you post a question for me at clark.com. Producer Joel asks it. Joel, what's up? 
Clark Roger wrote in and said, I'm traveling to the Orlando, Florida area in a week, and I need a car for a couple of weeks. I know I could rent one traditionally, but do you know of any other trustworthy and cost-effective ways to get around? So a few things. First, Turo, T-U-R-O, which is a fast-growing service in the country where you rent a car from another individual. And it's kind of like uh, Airbnb for car rentals. And so Turo, I'm seeing more and more situations where I'm talking to people who are doing Turo, more people who own vehicles that are listing them on Turo for rent. And that often will be much cheaper than renting from a traditional car rental company. Another thing people do is when you get to Orlando, if you, instead of getting a rental car at the airport, take an Uber or Lyft to an enterprise location that's a neighborhood location, those tend to rent vehicles a lot cheaper than an airport car rental. You know how enterprise has the little neighborhood locations in suburbs all over the country that that may save you a lot of money. Another thing I've noticed with Enterprise with that is that different locations in a metro area often will charge very different prices. So if you hunt around on Enterprise, that could save you money. And if you you may find that doing Uber and Lyft could actually be cheaper depending on how much you're moving around in those two weeks than you having any form of rental car. Uh, One sneak a peek. Yeah. Coming up in a few weeks, the deals will start appearing and we'll have them on ClarkDeals.com where you can rent a car in one place in the country. As long as you'll drop it in Florida, you get a rental for five, typically five to eight dollars a day, and you're allowed to have the vehicle for up to two weeks. Then you just buy a cheap one way ticket to get back home. All right, Clark, Joseph wanted to know, you heard about the Experian security breach, and he said when a PIN number is exposed, you said to change the PIN number with Experian. How do you do that? With the Experian breach, the best thing to do is to actually permanently remove your security freeze with Experian, and that takes just a second online, and then turn right around and put in a new one. That is the only simple way I know of with Experian to clean up the hazards that exist because of their vulnerabilities with your existing security freeze code with Experian. And we've got the procedure for you explained at Clark.com. You're listening to The Clark Howard Show. Thanks for joining us today. The Clark Howard Show is produced by Kim Drobes, Joel Larsgaard, Deborah Reese, and Jim Ayers. And remember, 24 hours a day, we're there to serve you at Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com.